Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. I teach Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I am Paul Esso. I'm a Hebrew Bible PhD student at Yale University. I'm Rosie Candlefall. I'm a PhD candidate at Emory University in Hebrew Bible and also Louisville Institute Teaching Fellow at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. And I'm Rachel Wren. I teach Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. This week, folks, we have a treat for you. We are going to be covering the Isaiah 61 text for the first Sunday after Christmas, and we are all here, as you may have heard. So it's a party episode. (laughs) It's the first reading Christmas party. (laughs) We've got Tiny Tim, Scrooge. Okay, well, preachers, so finally we're done with Advent, right? We can just take a break. Move on to something fresh in the lectionary, like, I don't know. Isaiah. Isaiah. (laughs) Moving on. And not only Isaiah, Isaiah 61, again. Again, Paul just did an episode on the first 11 verses of Isaiah 61 (laughs) just a few weeks ago. And now we're we're picking up the last couple verses in that chapter again and the first few verses of the next chapter, Isaiah 62. That's right. I will say it is it is a nice Christmas season text. I mean, just, you know, when you think about Advent and into Christmas, at least for me, what comes up is like lights and shiny things and imagery. And and this text is just chock full of lights and shiny things and imagery. So in that sense, it's kind of a nice one to continue that that spirit and momentum of the the shiny things of Christmas. Mm. So, you know, being a poetry dork, I was immediately captured by the images in this text. And one of the things that captured me is is how different they are. If you're reading it to a congregation, it'd be easy to read it and just kind of read past the way that these images play together and just kind of read them as separate images. But the the interplay between them is really fascinating because together, when they're put side by side like this, they create an image itself that is sort of more the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so for preachers, as you're thinking about preaching this, I encourage you to really go slowly through it as you're prepping. And then if you choose it as your preaching text, to go slowly through it as you're, you're reading it to your congregation um, and mm. invite them to imagine how putting these images next to each other brings different aspects of each image into sharper focus. Uh, So you start with rejoicing and exulting. This is really just the first couple of verses. Rejoicing and exulting, garments and robes, garlands and jewels, earthy shoots and garden sprouts, righteousness and praise. And what we see there is, is I would say there's a metaphor that's building. It goes from robes to jewels to spring growth, which could feel like a different sort of odd way to to build, going from jewels to spring growth. But what that does is by the time you make it to the end of the metaphor, the earth's shoots and the garden sprouts are more than just plants. They're the earth's clothing, even more so that they're mm. the earth's jewels. And And then what that leads you to is what's the crowning jewel in this building metaphor, which is the final line righteousness and praise of God. So so putting all of that together, you have an image of righteousness and praise that is as as essential as clothing, as beautiful as jewels, and as exciting or even necessary as, as spring shoots if you're an agrarian society. Mm. So I just really love the way those images play together in these first couple mm. verses. 
Yeah, that's really interesting that that you brought those together. I just saw it as a bunch of mixed metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) But I hadn't really thought of the the things sprouting up in the earth as being sort of like the the jewels of God's creation. That's a really beautiful way to use that metaphor. When you pointed that out, what I saw was the the light image that comes in as well, kind of the sparkling on the dew of the grass. And it just kind of, to me, I was like, yes, that's, that's right. There is a just a beauty of the morning sun catching yes. catching the light and catching the water on the grass. Well, and I remember too being a rural pastor and, you know, so you have white fields and then the snow melts and you have this beautiful black dirt in southwest Minnesota, but it's, you know, it's just it just looks rich and ready and then all of a sudden when those when those shoots come up, it's like fuzzy. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's there's an excitement there as well. I think that there's something really interesting and fascinating about language and the way it's used in prophetic literature broadly, you know, yeah. just like using really evocative and, you know, aesthetically pleasing and, uh, you know, provocative language sometimes, depending on what the context is saying. Like here, clothing, yeah. but it's like clothing with salvation and righteousness. Like what kind of cloth is yeah. that, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. like the emperor's clothes. Like the like... emperor's clothes, right. <laughs> There's something about like praise and righteousness, you know. And the Like those two things shoot up like plants, yeah. you know, shoot up from the air. It's just beautiful yeah. language, poetic language, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, like the sort of riffing on that ag- agricultural metaphor, the plants sort of shoot up, like it says, but it, the causality here is given to God, right? Yeah. The, the way that they viewed agriculture was that, you know, the farmers do their work, but then the growth, that belongs to God. Right. God yeah. causes the plants to sprout up. Right. And in yeah. that same way, God is causing this righteousness and praise to sprout up yeah. before the nations. So it really, it's not just sort of a wonder of the mystery of it all, but a, a signing of effectiveness yeah. to God's activity behind the scenes right. in that sort of invisible realm behind it all. That's right. Makes me think of the Pauline text that, so I planted and Apollos watered, Indeed. but God gave the Indeed. growth, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I feel yeah. like one thing that we I, haven't really touched that much on is the sort of central metaphor here of the bridegroom and the bride within these images, yeah. right? So the like the fecundity, the promise of marriage, and mm-hmm. then the life that comes fr- from it, and then the beautiful clothing. Uh, I mean, of course, we're we're looking at a heteronormative kind of imagery here of a of a woman and a man, but yeah. we might be just thinking about the liturgical moment of a wedding, right? And that's kind of central here. Yeah. So it's not just clothing, but it's clothing for this liturgical moment between mm-hmm. two people, two families. Um, and the thing that I'm kind of also struck by is the li- literary context that we're in. So we're in Third Isaiah. We're talking to the exiles who are returning to the land and who to a land that is in some ways not what they remember. It, it is not the kind of nostalgic memory of what that land was, you know, full of beauty and full of blessing. It yeah. is now a land that has been pillaged, a land that has been looted, a land that needs to be restored. And so the people are coming back, but yeah. it's, that's a slow process, right? So as we think about how the prophet addresses the people with hope and with these kind of mystical images of, of, of marriage and of these garments of praise and of righteousness and of shoots that are coming up from the ground, it is this two verses that we're just talking about here. 
but this complex mm-hmm. mix mm-hmm. of of love for the land and it's at the center of this and the love of God for God's people and just kind of the the community coming together um, and witnessing what God is doing in their midst. What does it do that these images are here of this sort of, you know, getting decked out for a wedding is more than just, you know, having your your casual clothes on, right? This is there's an extravagance right. here in the context that you're talking about, Rosie, where the reality on the ground is one of desolation indeed yeah what does this type of poetic imagery do to people who are hearing it in that context i wonder well, one thing you're pointing to that I, you know i just i'd like to point to too is the language here that we've all been talking about is there there is a a distinct richness you know in the kind of the various clothing so we see it earlier in verse 3 the garland instead of ashes in the NRSV and the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise, right? And then repeat it again at verse 10, we have clothed with the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness. And then as a bridegroom in the NRSV decks himself with a garland. But uh, when mm-hmm. when you look at the Hebrew, the word for decks himself is he dresses himself as a priest. So the verb really yeah. is, it's not just about marriage, but just a, a connection to um, the, the way that a, a minister might clothe themselves to serve. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's a really, really different way of thinking about that wedding metaphor. Yeah. It, it really touched mm. me to think about how how a priest addresses themselves, prepares themselves for that moment of service, and how, in some way for me, as somebody who's not ordained, who's sitting in the congregation watching what a minister wears, I often see that garment as separation. But as I look at this particular verse, it, it reminds me of the Sinai covenant that we are all called to be priests. We are all called to serve the nations. Mm. And I think that's what Isaiah is also trying to remind us of, is that as we watch mm. this bridegroom being dressed, we too are, you know, are being dressed in this way to serve in, in some kind of yeah. mysterious fashion to me too. Yeah. Uther had a really wonderful doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, Indeed, yeah. which has been a really fun one to to play with in, in my tradition. So I love that connection, Rosie. And and I think, you know, the other the other piece that's really interesting here is is you're we're right to focus on that groom's garland and bride's jewels, because there's a chiastic structure to these verses mm-hmm. where you have, you know, just in case you forgot, a chiasm is a sequence, especially in poetry sometimes, but a, a sequence where you have a list of things and then halfway through that list, the sequence repeat, the sequence repeats, but in reverse order. Mm-hmm. So you have part A, part B, part C, and then you return to part B and return to part A again. And so the two A's here are rejoicing and exulting in verse 10 and righteousness and praise in verse 11. Mm-hmm. You have garments and robes in uh, verse 10B. And then uh, earth shoots and the garden's leafy sprouts, which is kind of like growth. But as we talked about earlier, it's also the covering of the earth. And Mm -hmm. all of that, what that does is then two things. One, it highlights the central portion for which there is no repetition. It's just said once. So you have the grooms acting as a priest as he dresses himself for his wedding and the bride's jewels. And so I love this idea that even the text itself is, is tipping us towards that moment and wants to draw our attention to it. But the other thing that a chiasm does is then it's something usually shifts in the second repetition. And so then it draws your attention to, okay, so if it's repeating, what's different about this repetition? And what I think is really beautiful 
is that the rejoicing and exulting in God in verse 10 is an individual doing it. Mm -hmm. By the time you Mm. get to verse 11, righteousness and praise are springing up before all of the nations. So there is a communal and an outward facing turn that somehow dressing oneself as a priest and engaging in this this liturgical moment with community draws you outward. Uh, And I think that could be a really interesting preaching point. I don't know if you want to do a whole chiasm piece as a sermon, if you can, (laughs) but you know, just that that this this text is actually pulling us outwards to a place where what delights God is when we cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Wow. I wanna I wanna push us a little bit on something if I can. Yeah. And that's the the agency here. Mm-hmm. I mean I, I agree with everything that you're saying there, Rachel, and and that's a, a beautiful way to interpret this. But in addition, there's uh, an assignment of agency to God in this passage that's yeah. that really shines through. So as a as a bridegroom decks himself, but in the verse before that, it's God has clothed me. Mm-hmm. And as the the uh, earth brings forth its shoots, God causes that growth. Nice. Yeah. I think there's a there's a divine agency here that really runs through the text in a way that in that context of desolation yeah. and poverty and destruction there's there's a word of grace here of yeah. a gift of clothing of new life. No, I think that's absolutely right, Tim. And I think what I love about that too is that the the center of the chiasm then is the only place where we're actually doing anything. The rest of it is framed and cushioned and made happening by God. And I think that's a great preaching point. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. So maybe that's a responsive element, right? That yeah. God takes the initiative to clothe to clothe us with grace. Mm-hmm to cause new growth and the response is to, you know, dress for the occasion. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, and then show up and let God do what God does. Yeah, and I think in in mm. the context mm. of desolation, exile, all of the devastations, like God actually doing the things seals out mm. the 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 sort of hope that it brings, right? Mm. It just it just confirms it and solidifies the hope. Because it's like, you know, I- instead of clothing with uh, devastation and uh, and pain and and trouble you're going to be clothed with this new set of clothes that is actually righteousness and it's actually salvation yeah. and and instead of the sound of war and the sound of uh, horses riding to capture or mm. the sound of devastation it's going to be a sound of praise and it's going to be a sound of righteousness that is caused by God right so it's God confirming and sealing the hope through God's activity. And of course, we respond by receiving and wearing it and all of that. But mm. you know, I think that for me thickens the, 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 the expectation you know, of change to come in the future, mm. right? Mm. Mm-hmm. The other thing that strikes me about that image is that this is all public, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This is a, a wedding feast mm-hmm. and the sprouting of, of the earth's vegetation all of this is stuff that doesn't happen in a secret corner, but this is something that God is doing as that last line of the chapter brings out before all the nations. Indeed. I think there's a, yeah. I almost think of it as a, there's a, like an in spite of-ness to this, like in spite of the war, in spite of the devastation, <laughs> God's activity shines, like decks out the people mm-hmm. 
in garb for the whole world to see God's righteousness played out among yeah. among the people. Mm. And I think, you know, two thoughts. First of all, when I was when I was in college and I got to spend a semester in France, I picked up a prayer at a monastery there and what sold me on the prayer was the last line cuz the last line in in French is um Revête-moi de ta bonté, Seigneur, et qu'au long de ce jour, je te révèle, which is, clothe me with your goodness, God, so for the whole day long, I will reveal you. Yeah. And I, I just loved that image of that when we are clothed with righteousness and praise, what actually happens is a revelation. Yeah. It's not just a covering. It, it draws attention to something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I love that piece of this, and it, it connects with me kind of in a, in a personal way. But the other thing I think too is is to keep in mind what is the purpose of being clothed with righteousness and praise before all the nations? Is it sort of this like, ha ha, like, you know, we're God's chosen? I don't think so, especially at this point in Isaiah. I think what at this point in Isaiah, what the hope is tipping towards is that everyone is drawn into mm -hmm. this this clothing and this righteousness and this praise. So it's it's not just a boasting that happens, but it's it's a it's a call or an invitation even to the nations. I think in verse I think in verse nine of the of sixty one actually there's something about you know descendants being known among the nations, but it doesn't end there. Yeah. There's something about they will see and acknowledge, right? And then if you keep going in sixty two verse two, there's something about kings knowing God's glory, right? So it is yeah. it is the display. The display of of God's work in in Israel, right? In, in spite of the devastation, God has lifted you up this much, and mm -hmm. you know, like renamed you in a way mm -hmm. that brings glory to God, not only for your sake, but that every one of your neighbors will see it and acknowledge the God who did it. Yeah. But before we get to 62, can I just draw for preachers that are thinking about the gospel reading too? So it's Luke chapter 2, the Nunc Dimittis, that Simeon is, he's, he is promised to be able to see the Messiah before he dies. And the, the words that he uses actually really connects well with what all of, all of you are pointing out, which is this revelation in, in the Greek apocalypsis, mm -hmm. right? So Simeon says mm -hmm. the, the revelation, a light to the peoples, to the Gentiles, and the glory of Israel, right? So that those are the words that Simeon uses. So it's a really just a kind of a continuation of what we're talking about here in Isaiah. Um, and it kind of, it also, the Luke 2 reading includes Anna, the prophetess, uh, the widow, who also acclaims the same thing, is that this this child is the, uh, the redemption, it is the promised light not only for Israel, but for the for the world. So uh, to me, there's just a beautiful um, continuum that you're you're pointing out here in that this vindication, uh, this salvation is not is not a ha, but a like yeah. a, can, can you believe mm -hmm. that God believe. would do yeah. this? You know, with with yes. a community so yeah. humiliated, so hurt before the nations, can you believe yeah. that that yeah. now they stand before you? You know, in in this in this radiance, in this beauty. Not to yeah. eliminate the scars. I mean, to see those scars as part of what God is doing. Well, and I, and I love that you brought in that moment because in two twenty seven, the Greek is also highlighting God's agency. There, mm. it's kaielthen ento pneumati. Mm. So, and he came by the mm. Spirit, which is you know the the 
scripture NRSV says he was guided by the spirit, which brings you back, back to Tim's point that this is God's causative action provoking these beautiful moments of clothing and radiance in spite of, you know, devastation and turmoil and trauma. Mm-hmm. This is why I say amen in church. One little Hebrew tidbit that I would throw in at this point then would be the term righteousness that, that's shown yeah. up a couple times in these verses and also comes back up, as we'll see in, in Isaiah 62. My knee-jerk reaction to the word righteousness is that it's like something to do with morality mm. and being good and all yes. of that kind of stuff. But I'm pretty sure that the terms being used here in the, in the sense of God's own doing right by the people. Like when God causes righteousness to spring up, it's God being faithful to the covenant that God has made, that God's doing right. God is being right. Mm -hmm. And and the way I see that popping up again in chapter 62, in that first verse, I think the uh, the NRSV has until her vindication shines out like the dawn. Mm -hmm. And the NJPS says uh, victory there Mm -hmm. for vindication. But the word is Sedek. Mm -hmm. It's righteousness again. Yeah, Nice. It's, you know, I, the God, we'll maybe talk about who the I is there, <laughs> says, well, yeah. I will not keep silent until Jerusalem's righteousness, righteous vindication, yeah. victory shines yeah. out. I think it's until God comes through and shows faithfulness to this place. I'll keep, I'll keep bugging until that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about verse one? Indeed. Yeah. Perhaps we should. What do you think, Paul? I mean, I, you know, I think the question of who is doing the talking really, really, really makes a lot of things clear. And I see possibilities in both, right? If it is the prophet talking, then it is, then it is the prophet insisting that this promised vindication, this future expectation of new clothing or future expectation of vindication um, is not here yet. And that through his prophetic speech, or through his decision not to be silent, he's causing it to be. Like he's causing God to be reminded so that it would. But if it is God, then in light of all the things we have said, God, it seems that God, God is, you know, still going on with his reassurance and reconfirmation um, of his work for Israel in saying that I've said all these things and all these things will come to pass and I'm not going to keep silent until I see all these things come to pass, right? So it's like both ways, it fits yeah. quite okay. I'm leaning a little bit towards mm. the um, the prophet doing the talking, although I don't have as much evidence yet. Hunches are okay. Yes. <laughs> That's <laughs> what me. I think, Tim. What do you think? I, I, I like hearing it through the voice of the prophet. There's a sense there of, um, for me, it turns the, the prophecy into a kind of um, prophetic protest. Exactly. Or picket. Yeah. <laughs> Picketing outside the, the gates of heaven. Yeah. I will continue to speak up. I'll continue <laughs> to plead and, until the righteousness that I've promised on God's behalf to the people. Yeah. <laughs> actually shows up and they experience it. That's that's what I'm going to keep doing and so the prophets committing themselves to themselves to to do this. Did anyone else feel like kind of the gut punch of of hearing mm-hmm. those words that for Zion's sake mm-hmm. I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest. So for me as much as I hear the resonance of uh, the prophet and possibly God in cooperation or you know, however this 
however we think about these two agencies. But it was the contemporary situation that we're in right now for preachers as they think about this text. It's really, I think, hard to say these words uh, without kind of considering what does it mean uh, to keep silent or to speak um, on behalf of Zion and Jerusalem. Those words are so loaded uh, in this moment. And so mm-hmm. I just, I, I wondered if, if others felt the kind of, um, I don't know, for me, like a, a dissonance, a, a, a note of like, uh, this is not finished. And it, mm. it, it, we're in the middle of a, a great deal of pain and devastation. Um, as these verses are being read in this Christmas season, uh, where we're where we're watching, yeah, yeah we're watching bombs and people displaced just as mm. then. Mm. Mm. Yeah, this definitely hit me. I've had some opportunities to preach lately, and uh, I've struggled to sort of find my voice in in this moment. And so, as I read this this passage. Yeah, I felt that gut punch. I, I came up with three preaching pitfalls <laughs> related to this. The first one is if a preacher sort of tacitly endorses the vindication or victory of Israel in this passage, then they risk lending support and legitimacy to the violence of the state of Israel in this particular war, no matter the human cost involved. Yeah. And so you don't want to you don't want to do that, I don't think. But then pitfall number two is if you distance this text from a modern Israel to avoid Mm -hmm. pitfall number one, then you're also risking a kind of unintended anti-Semitism. Supersessionism as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I don't know, just a a real real pickle. (laughs) The the best I could do was... Maybe context to the rescue. I don't know right. the the vindication that's promised here or, or proclaimed here is the divine support that's given to a people who've been desolated by war and violence against unstoppable powers. My thought is in the in the present conflict, those most desolated are the Palestinians of Gaza. Though we should also remember the Israelis who stood defenseless against the aggression of Hamas on October 7th. Right. Those who have been kidnapped as hostages, whose lives are still hanging in the balance. And Palestinians in the West Bank who've suffered a kind of less publicized violence in these weeks since October 7th. Yeah. I feel like this text speaks on behalf of all of these victims of violence, no matter who's perpetrating it, right? Mm -hmm. And it affirms God's side with the suffering. Yeah. God's re- refusal to take on sort of the slanderous names that are slung around by the world. In this text, God offers a new name, a new honor, new blessing. And in this text, that new hope is offered explicitly to Jerusalem. But um, not Jerusalem of all time, but Jerusalem in its state at the time of present desolation. That's right. Yeah. So it doesn't offer or promise victory to any state that's sort of backed by powerful militaries in the world, yeah. um, but but to those who are suffering, to those who are under the, the desolation of war, this is a, a promise of a new vision, mm-hmm. a new hope. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, Tim, and, and I just appreciate the, the, the carefulness with which you kind of thought through both the implications of it and, and maybe what to do a little bit about that. I, I keep coming back to your idea of keeping the focus on the ultimate actor and the ultimate agent in this text, who is, of course, God. And I, I think when we do that, it 
it allows us to answer the question. Paul, you and Tim asked the question, who is the one speaking in verse one? And then Tim, you're, you're kind of playing with the question, well, who is the one to whom being the person is speaking, <laughs> you know, both for ancient context and today? And I think I would, I would then invite us into verse three. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And, and ask the question, not who, but why? Why shall these, this, this Jerusalem, this Zion, whoever that is, is a crown of beauty and a royal diadem? And I, I think what that brings us back to is verse 10 in the previous chapter, where the bridegroom decks himself, the bride adorns herself with jewels. And why that's delightful to God is because God can use that human response to cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. So it's not just Jerusalem, it's not just Israel, it's not just Zion, but it's a it's a particular people in a particular moment that is useful for God to cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the whole earth. Yeah, that's great. And I'm glad that you drew our attention back to God who's acting here. I, I, I did promise three pitfalls, and my third one is along those lines. There's a sense in this, you could read this passage as a kind of, in the context of devastation, it'll, it'll all be okay. You know, yeah. it's all going to work out. <laughs> and I, I have to say that that kind of prophecy troubles me. Yeah. Um, because God hasn't done those things in this present con- yeah. context for Jews or Palestinians who are suffering. It hasn't been seen by Ukrainians who are suffering the, you know, violence of war. Nor for those who continue to suffer and are in need of salvation everywhere, right? So those words in this passage don't actually make me feel better. They kind <laughs> of make me doubt more or wrestle more. Like what good does it do to preach? these words in in a context like this. Mm. I kind of wrestled with that and I started to wonder if, you know, second or third Isaiah, whoever we attribute this to, <laughs> the prophet, I wonder if the prophet felt that same tension. Does this message do any good for a hurting community? I w- so I wonder if there's, I kind of come back to a preaching angle then of reading this as a call to God, yeah. to hold God to account for the kinds of promises and covenant that God has made. I love that angle. I, I'm, you know, especially someone with the Psalms, like presenting one's case to God and holding God accountable is one of my favorite angles. For me, I, I actually did find comfort in in this, even in its unrealistic audacity. And the the phrase that keeps coming back to me, especially in Advent or just coming out of Advent, is the thrill of hope. And that mm. that is that, you know, hope is when everything still seems impossible. Mm-hmm. It's not when the possible has, has already become realized. So for me, I, I see this as, as still a, a really necessary word, um, even if it does seem audacious and, and impossible. A weary world rejoices. <laughs> right, right. Not because they're not weary anymore, but in their weariness yeah, right. because of God stepping in. Yeah. yeah. And I think I like even in different church context, I have seen a lot of churches, especially churches among uh, people that are experiencing suffering in different ways, like, you know, read this text and and read it in light of like, you know, uh, yeah. read it as a way of coping, you know, with yeah. the oppressing mm. situation. And, mm. and, and, and although like I would not be, you know, hasty to encourage people to read the text and sort of resolve the tension of like unpromised unfulfilled promise, I should say, uh, making it re- reality. I don't want you to resolve the tension because the text 
doesn't really resolve the tension. But I think there's something really powerful about reading prophetic prophetic texts like this in a context where things are you know really tough to deal with, and bearing with the the the, the context of the of the prophecy. And and hoping along with it, and, and saying, yeah, nice. you know, th- th- mm. this is my situation, but but mm. I I hope, you know, even if mm. it is even if it is like imploring on God to act, I I, I dare you God to act quickly for my vindication's yeah. sake, you know, <laughs> I, you know, for for the sake of my people, I I'm not gonna keep quiet, I'm not gonna keep silent. You you have to act quickly, God. And I think there's something really powerful about hoping along those lines even if yeah. even if the reality is far off in the future you know lovely mm. that's that's really helpful sort of a, a in a way a borrowing of hope from the prophet indeed yeah indeed mm-hmm. from the text <laughs> mm-hmm. for me i think if i could just draw us back i think to the gospel because i find in the song mm-hmm. of simeon again and that passage from luke chapter two draws pretty openly from isaiah and from third and second isaiah mm-hmm. particularly so the line that's standing out to me as I'm listening to is, it's a strange moment for Simeon. And the first lines he says is, now you have let your servant depart in peace. And uh, he has no yeah. idea what this infant will eventually die, uh, suffer at the hands of the state, be cruelly treated. But in that, in that potential life and in this family, because he sees uh, Joseph and Mary, he, he speaks to them and warns them that the way ahead will not be easy. But yet, uh, in this infant is the hope of nations. And Mary marvels over these words, right? And I think I'm, I'm with that as well. As I, I, I look at these words now in this season, and it's hard for me not to, um, not to ponder these things in my own heart, you know, in the way that I have no idea how you're going to accomplish this. But as we've said here too, I, I hang on to the thrill of hope. I think we have a title for the episode. <laughs> well, I think that's a that's a great note to end it on, Rosie. Thank you all for a really fascinating conversation in this um, beautiful but also tricky and slightly disturbing text. Yeah. There's there's a lot going on here, and quite a few different ways that preachers could take take this text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, friends, uh, thank you for listening with us and and, uh, coming to our Christmas party. It's been great to have you. I'll try to work some jingle bells into (laughs) our theme music or something like that. First reading is produced by me and Rachel and Rosie and Paul. And you can find all of our back episodes on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're also hanging around on the Facebook, so you can interact with us there as well. There's a a few new fun items on our merch page. If you'd like to support the podcast in that way, we would love to see you there. And uh, until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Paul Essen. And I'm Rosie Candlepole. And I'm Rachel Wren. Merry Christmas and happy preaching. God bless us, everyone. (laughs) Tiny Tim. (laughs) 